HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I do not add the words as a frivolity to amuse myself. And? You gave me plain flour. So I have a day's baking to throw out unless I am to serve his lordship with a plateful of bricks. Why didn't you check that it was right? Now, don't start blaming me. Of course, if I were allowed... Enough! I will bring the flour. See that you do. Well, in case you didn't recognize that, that was the voice of our very beloved Mrs. Patmore from the downstairs kitchen at Downton Abbey. And I thought it would be quite interesting and a lot of fun to talk about the food of the Edwardian era and what goes on at Downton Abbey downstairs, much like the upstairs downstairs that a lot of people would remember from years ago, the Masterpiece Theater once again. We have Downton Abbey, and it is just creating waves of of fanaticism with people who tape it, watch it over and over again, and can't wait for the next season. And here to join me to talk about the specifics of what might have been going on is culinary historian Kathy Kaufman. Kathy is an independent scholar, a writer, an author, and the chairman of the Culinary Historians of New York. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you so much, Linda. And I might say we are sitting here having our afternoon tea, getting in the mood. Absolutely, (laughs) in the mood. Good, strong tea, as it should be in England. Well, in watching Downton Abbey, and I have to admit, I confess, I am one of those who who have been addicted, um, just love 
what goes on downstairs, love the table settings, love all the drama that that's, uh, surrounds it. Much of what happens in this, uh, this series happens in the kitchen, I have to say, or within the, you know, the purviews of the service staff. And food was always so important, and they were, it seems like they were always eating. Um, as Mrs. Pat Moore said at one time, she was exhausted she, because every day was a banquet. That's what you do at a country house. After all, you don't have the immediate distractions of popping off to the theater, as you might in London. And the country house was built on the premise that it would be, in some senses, self-sufficient. You had game and hunting possibilities. You had the garden. You could go foraging for berries and all sorts of wonderful things. And food and the dining room was one of the main focuses of the day. Uh, it's not surprising that so much would take place both in the dining room and then all the fabulous little intrigues and conflicts and frustrations and pressures that you feel in the uh, downstairs. That's very, right. very difficult. Indeed. Well, I read somewhere that they said in the food, yes, it was, you know, there were, they, they were eating all the time, but they said that was the one area where it was um, precisely the duty to impress with the food they put on the plate. Uh, absolutely. You had ways of showing your cultural capital, your wealth, uh, done through both who was cooking for you, what they were preparing, and how it was being served, and, of course, what the accoutrements were that you had on the table, your silver, uh, your china, your uh, glassware, all of that, particularly with the English, if it could have been handed down for a few generations, uh, you could increase your cultural capital that way. Well, before we get into the specifics of the service, because mm-hmm. that I really want to talk about that, and I'm sure people want to hear what Carson's instructions were and how he was to serve... You know, so much um, is is ha- was not anymore. Was for a while bandied about, but ugh, English food. It was so dull. It was so horrible. Um, however, Ivan Day, um, who is a food historian in England, was interviewed for NPR's food blog, The Salt, and um, said, "Well, no, indeed, the food was." incredibly good during that period of time. We're Absolutely. talking what we're talking the Edwardian period 1880 to what to 19, yeah, say 1920. Well, uh, I guess Edward is off the throne before That's that, right. but nonetheless we are talking through certainly the first world war period. Uh, you have to keep in mind that at this point England is a fabulous imperial power. It has a lot of wealth. It can command so many different resources. Uh, including French cooks in the kitchen, if you can. Uh, And if you can't, a good uh, stout English cook was certainly appreciated. Uh, But English food at that time had fabulous butter, fabulous cream, fabulous meats. It had a wonderful, wonderful garden uh, supporting most of the houses, such as Downton Abbey. Uh, So there'd be no reason for the food not to be good. Uh, English food gets its bad reputation because of all of the true hardships uh, that the population underwent after World War Mm I. There was food rationing. 
then you have the Great Depression, then you have World War II and food rationing that lasts well into the 1950s in England. So you really have a you know, close to half a century of culinary deprivation. Understandable deprivation from the war on. But this- uh, absolutely. Um, so, so that's really, that is a 20th century phenomenon, not the late 19th through Edwardian period. Right. Uh, Mrs. Patmore is the, as you refer, stout English cook. (laughs) And yes, had they been of of more means, they would have had a French chef, as you mentioned. However, the dishes, many of the dishes that are referred to uh, throughout the show are indeed French dishes. Absolutely. Bouff à la mode is mm-hmm. one of the favorite dishes that gets imported from France and very, very quickly adopted in England. And you also have to keep in mind that some of the style setters in the late Victorian and then Edwardian period uh, are French chefs who are working in England. You think of Charles Francatelli, who was the chef to Queen Victoria. Mm-hmm. He studied with Antonin Carême and trained in France with Carême. He wrote several cookbooks that were very popular in England, uh, one very elite uh, cookbook for Uh, people at Downton Abbey or trying to maintain a very, very fancy lifestyle. Uh, And he also wrote cookbooks for uh, lower classes, lower socioeconomic strata, but there would be, to the extent possible, French influences brought into those as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's not at all surprising that even with a proper English cook, there would definitely be French influences in the cuisine and to the extent possible, really emulating the haute cuisine of 19th century France. Well, in the series, very few dishes are referred to by name, you know, (laughs) what's really going on the plate, except Early on, there was a reference to desserts, crepe Suzette. Oh, yes. And a Charlotte. Yes. Okay. Um, and I, um, I did read where Julian Fellows, who wrote the series, mm-hmm. he called upon Alistair Bruce, um, a historian, to, uh, to be the consultant on the show. Uh, th- he's a food historian as well, I believe. And he's also the officer of arms to the Queen. Now, because there is an English woman cook mm-hmm. not chef cook in you know in the downstairs absolutely um, evidently he based many of the meals or most of the meals in the series on mrs beaton's book of household management and it's a fabulous book absolutely and this is published um, just prior to the period that we're watching in the, in the absolutely series. i think it's 1868 mm-hmm. is the date for mrs beaton and uh, so that so there we would see more uh, i don't not necessarily French dishes, but more, uh, but still they would be elite dishes. Uh, They would be very elite dishes, and there are plenty of recipes in Mrs. Beaton that are uh, by their French names, and when you look at the illustrations to Mrs. Beaton, uh, I'm sure the listeners will have seen copies of these illustrations. They may not realize they're from Mrs. Beaton, but they're these wonderful pyramids of, you know, sweets, uh, heavily garnished uh, fish, uh, beautiful roasts, all sorts of food, really arrayed in pyramids, which is what Mrs. Beaton was all about. She Mm -hmm. was giving French cuisine for a proper middle-class Victorian household, and of course middle-class at that point was someone who had a couple of servants, 
they had a cook. It's not what we think of as middle class. It was a different definition of middle class. But it was certainly people who were living in a very stylish, if somewhat sensible manner. Because, of course, Mrs. Beaton would not want you not to be sensible. Uh, But the the food would have definitely been highly ornamented and ornamental. Kind of a 19th century Julia Child, if you will. (laughs) I think more of a 19th century Martha Stewart in many ways. I I think, yes. I I think Julia was a little less uh, ornamented than Martha. Yeah, but bringing the French dishes certainly to to the classes. Uh, Well, let's talk a little bit about, in fact, the table settings uh, they're beautiful tables. They they don't show. Unfortunately, I you know you never get to see a precise close up of, of right. how they've reproduced it. But I'm sure that this Alistair Bruce you know was, did his homework and was, yes, being the you know serve in the service of the queen, he you know it's, it's de rigueur for him. What would we see on a typical table of this uh, gentry class and and of this period in terms of formal setting? A formal setting would start with the tablecloth, which would have to be a pristine linen or damask cloth. Uh, There would be a crease down the middle, which would be the guide to the butler for arraying everything else on that. That center crease was considered very, very important. Um, In England, unlike in the U.S., While you would have some flowers and you would certainly have silver candelabra and your wax candles, it would not be overly profuse. I I think there's an interesting juxtaposition between an American table of this time and an English table. Uh, And the American table is actually rather gaudy by comparison. Hmm. The English table is a little more refined, uh, a little more discreet. You would certainly have your uh, placeholder plate. Uh, You would have several glasses uh, arrayed for the first several courses. Uh, A big plate, you would have probably no more than two forks, uh, a soup spoon, and two knives put out at the beginning of the meal. Uh, And those would go tines facing up, unlike the French custom of having them tines facing down, uh, which is something that the Americans were never quite sure what they should be doing. So it it goes both ways uh, in America at this point. Um, You would then have stacks of dishes ready to go for subsequent courses, uh, additional silverware ready to go. Uh, There would be decanters lined up with your wines that would be ready to go. And of course, wine would be matched to the courses, although the matchings may be a bit different than what we're used to today. Mm. If you look at some of the menus from the 1890s, it's rather horrifying for our modern palates to think sauterne with raw oysters, <laughs> but that would have been a very, very uh, popular pairing. Yeah, interesting. Well, the crease down the middle reminds me of one scene where uh, Carson, the head butler, is walking around surveying the table to check to make sure everything is ready and whips out his measuring stick. Mm-hmm. He actually takes a ruler and and puts it on the table. Now, whether this is hyperbole in, in what a butler would do, or if he indeed was, you know, that was, was indeed it's, done. It's completely hyperbole. When you look at a few of the servants' guides in the 19th century, um, some of them actually do tell you to either measure perhaps a thumb's width or two thumb's mm-hmm. width. You may not need a ruler, but the idea of lining everything up with the 
the edges was... It made the point. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I want to talk more about the courses and mm-hmm. the many courses when we come back after a short break. So stay tuned. program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery. Kane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.kane5.com. We are back talking about the food of Downton Abbey with culinary historian Kathy Kaufman. And, Kathy, you had mentioned before the break um, all the dishes, all the plates that would be ready for the many courses. Let's talk about how many courses. Let's let's say in uh, not, not your standard, well, it actually would be the standard Wednesday night dinner, but let's talk about a, a little bit more of a show, an elegant uh, Saturday night when you had a few guests up from the city a few guests from the city perhaps the local pastor over and all of that (laughs) yes and an eligible young bachelor oh we always (laughs) need eligible young bachelors don't we uh the number of courses could vary but at absolute minimum you would assume there would be about six courses uh starting most typically with oysters or if it's not an r month raw clams. You have to keep in mind that the prohibition against oysters in months without an R was very, very firmly adhered to. And refrigeration was not all over. You would not have uh, the same ease and convenience, but you would have ice houses. It mm-hmm. wouldn't actually be that hard, and the transportation from coastal areas in England into the countryside um, would make oysters a relatively easy product to handle, um, surprisingly so. After that, you would have a soup, uh, or actually, if you were doing an elegant meal, you would probably have two soups, a choice between a clear consomme and then a cream or sometimes what they call uh, a thick soup. Mm -hmm. Uh, It could be some sort of pureed vegetable potage, something like that. Now, talk about we were talking um, prior to the show about about the China and and how it was much different than what we would imagine today, Um, although some people still have collections of it. It's around. You see it in many restaurants as well. The soup would be served in a a soup bowl, but more like a a coffee cup or a tea cup. Well, a bouillon cup with the two little handles on either side that you feel you could almost pick them up and sip from them, but of course you would never do do that. That That would be horrifying. Um, But there were very, very specific rules for eating your soup. One is that you would scoop the soup with your soup spoon and only sip from the edge of the soup. 
never from the end. It was considered extremely poor form to tip your soup bowl to get the last bit. So you always left this little film of, you know, culinary delight that if you're very <laughs> hungry, you've been out riding all afternoon and having such a strenuous day. And it's, you know, your second course, you, you can hardly wait for the next courses mm-hmm. uh, to come in. But there was a strict etiquette and you didn't eat much soup. You were served a half a ladle full of soup at an elegant meal. Uh, if it was a, quote, casual meal you were entitled to a full ladleful, but even so, compared to what we think of as modern portions, um, you're eating much less per course, which of course allows you to have six or 10 or 12 or 18 different courses. <laughs> and then after the soup, we would have? You would have what was called the hors d'oeuvre. <clears throat> and the hors d'oeuvre would be not the little canapé that we think of at a cocktail party, but it could be something uh, en croute, perhaps a uh, pastry shell with a little bit of creamed chicken. Uh, it could be something as simple as some sardines. Uh, it would really vary, and you could have actually a choice of several mm-hmm. different hors d'oeuvres. It would not necessarily be one choice. And uh, in an elegant meal, of course, you would have a menu that had either been printed more often in London and in the countryside, handwritten by the lady of the house that would be placed at each uh, setting. And then the diner would be able to look and decide what it is they would eat. Because of course, uh, the courses would be served by a waiter to the left and the diner would help themselves from the platter. So you might not particularly like something, but if you saw that none of the hors d'oeuvres were your favorites, you would probably make the best of a bad choice and pick the one that was most appealing to you. Now, this, that was that's an interesting point, because there was a, um, a scene in one of the episodes, which mm-hmm. illustrates this very nicely, and the butler comes around, or the head servant comes around with a very large tray, up to a, somebody who's new at the house, <clears throat> the young man who comes from not quite as elegant surroundings and he approaches him from the left with the big tray and the young man of course being a little bit bowled over by all this finery just sort of sits there and then of course the daughter explains to him and instructs him well you are to serve you a diner serves himself from the tray yes that is the classic russian service technique that is something um that if we were asked to do that today, we would be rather awkward, but you had been in training to do this uh, all your life if you grew up in a proper household and you would know exactly how to do it. You would not sit and look at it or even think about what it is you wanted. Um, Some of the examples, and this often happens with the roast course, um, you should decide and know your preferences right in advance and not decide, do I want the wing or the breast or the leg? That's and never take the utensils, lift a piece, and put it back. That oh, was Lord, a no. Big oh, no, no. Oh, no. You will never be invited back again if you do that. One shot and one shot only. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, you must show proper demeanor, uh, but you should know your mind. As some of the etiquette books say, and I, I think it's such a wonderful way of looking at life, you really do need to know your mind on such trifles as dinner. Oh. Exactly, exactly. We have so much to think about. Um, So we made it through the appetizer, okay, the 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 order of appetizer course, right? Uh, You will then have a fish course, and that uh, could be trout, salmon, uh, sole, you know, so many, many different things. Now, Now, remember, at least three wines have been served. 
to oh, this yes. point. I mean, there is a different wine. I'm granted a few sips, but a different wine. They're always sipping and always eating, right? Well, and it's interesting when you look at the wine glasses from that time, they tend to be a bit smaller than our modern wine glasses. So you don't, I mean, when you think about these modern balloon glasses that we all love because they're so sensual and you can have so much wine in them, well, you would never see anything like that at uh, this period. And while people would never fill their glass all the way up, you could have the glass refilled several times and still have a relatively modest amount of wine. Drunkenness was certainly not anything that was encouraged at the table. Well, I liked hearing too that something that has, has, um, continued up to present day that it just a, a just a slight touch of the hand to the rim of the glass indicates to whoever's serving that no more you've had enough well you and know there's was... a real controversy about uh-huh. that uh some people think that that is vulgar at this point in time that you just look at the waiter and you say thank you and that is the signal you don't want wine When they come along with the wine, you can either nod or just let them pour. But to stop them, you say thank you. You don't even raise your hand. And I thought it was still always the touch of the rim. That's interesting. I love Uh, that. It it depends. There there is no agreement 100% on etiquette. You can find different writers who will say different things. uh, So it depends upon your author whether that's appropriate. Mm So we have a fish course coming. How many courses have we had so far? Uh, I I guess this is roughly four Four, courses at this point. Um, Then you're certainly going to need a roast course. Um, And no red wine will have been served Generally speaking, I mean, I know there are break. You know, there are, are no. You're probably not exceptions going, to the rule, but no, you won't you, have a red wine until after not, the fish. You will not right. have a red wine until after the fish, and even with the roast, some people preferred whites or some preferred champagne. I mean, some people had why champagne. Not? Well, <laughs> yes, if you can, why not? Uh, but they would have champagne throughout the meal. But yes, the roast would be the first course where you would have uh, your red wine, and that would often be a Burgundy or a Bordeaux. That is, you know, the English, they like their claret. Of course, it would never, they would never say Bordeaux. They would say claret. We should uh, be accurate and British. Now, most likely we have not seen anything green on the table yet. No vegetables yet. Uh, not completely true. Um, with the fish course, depending upon the type of fish, uh, you might have boiled potatoes and cucumber salad hmm. to go with it, and mm-hmm. those would go together. And certainly with the roast course, uh, there would be vegetable garnishes yes. uh, on the roast course definitely, to yeah. uh, come along. So you're starting to get them at this point. It is, of course, possible that even in some of your uh, hors d'oeuvre courses, uh, if you've got one of these little puff pastry things filled with a little cream chicken, there would be peas in it uh, or asparagus. And depending on the season, your soup might also be a vegetable-based soup. Uh, so while you won't see vegetables in the sense of, you know... Uh, a meat and two. <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. It's not center of the plate and two. Um, they are being worked into the menu uh, with relative frequency, uh, but not as... Uh, fundamental as we tend to think mm-hmm. of them. So that was a roast course, kind of winding down your third course. Well, was not that exactly. It? No, 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 Linda, <laughs> Linda. No, there's more to come. Um, and we've actually even gotten rid of the relevé course, which could come between the fish and the roast. 
um, but not necessarily. And that could be just any old uh, meat course uh, that was not considered a roast. It mm-hmm. might be a braised dish or a boiled dish. Uh, but yes, you do have to get to the roast. Uh, at some point, you then need to move to Roman punch, which is something that I really wish would come back. Roman punch is uh, a flavored slushy wine and it's a palate cleanser and it's just absolutely delightful and something that uh, really should come back in style. I think that's one of the few things that I would say must come back from the Edwardian times. And did they, and what was the French, did the French then, um, where did we get the, the sorbets in between? Was that from... Which came first, the slushy wine or the sorbets as the palate cleansers? I mean, that was... I think the slushy wines were probably there first uh, simply because you see them on so many menus in the Victorian era, Hmm. and you don't really see sorbet listed on them. Um, Now, of course, I'm talking about Anglo-American menus, uh, and I think if you were in France, you might see something a little bit different. Uh, but I think we then borrowed the French technique uh, many years later on. Well, we have, we're moving along here in our menu, so there could be, if it were really fancy, we'd have a few more of these courses. Oh, of course. Repetitious. Oh, we have a game course. But then we, and a game course. But, oh, then, we have to, but then we have to move on to um, the dessert or Desserts, plural. Yes, the desserts, yes. plural, because there are probably at least three different dessert courses. There is a, what is called a hot entremet, which is probably a souffle or something like that. Then there is the cold entremet, which would be, say, a Bavarian cream, something like that. And then there's dessert proper, which would be candied fruits, fresh fruits, cakes, pies, uh, jams, confiture, that sort of thing. But those would be done in three separate courses. Mm. And, of course, then there's coffee and brandy. Uh, well, not- coffee and uh, brandy, of course, the brandy is for the men. For the men. I was of saying, course. for the women. No, 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 We'd no. have to get up and leave. Yes. No, the coffee would be served, uh, but the women would then retire to the drawing room to do whatever the women did in the drawing room, <laughs> while the men would have brandy and cigars. cigars yes. uh, but in uh, England, they wouldn't stay there too long. Either the wine or the brandy would be passed around the table a couple of times, uh, but the men then joined the ladies for the after-dinner entertainments. A little live music by the uh, family or guests, and uh, then the evening would draw to a very uh, happy conclusion. Poor Mrs. Patmore. She really had her work cut out. She had to work very hard. (laughs) And the problem was it started all again the next day. But don't forget there was a breakfast with meats and eggs and porridge and all of that to be gotten up. And the pastries and the crusts. And usually she had, as far as kitchen aids, she wouldn't have, depending on the, the, um, the wealth of the family, but let's say just the moderate gentry upper class, would, right. she wouldn't have more than one or two assistants, most likely. That's probably right. Yeah. It was a tremendous amount of work, and uh, the reason why downstairs was such a different place from upstairs. That's right. This is so much fun, and I I think we should have a banquet, a Downton Abbey banquet. I, I would look for, well, we have to hire Mrs. Patmore in. She has got to cook for us. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks. I hope that it, you've shed some light for a lot of our listeners who are enjoying the series, and who will then have, take a little more interest when they do see the kitchen scenes come up and realize what a lot of labor it all was.
Very labor-intensive. This is pre-electricity. That's right. That's absolutely correct. Well, thank you so much for listening. Again, this has been A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks to Kathy Kaufman. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.